take your copies of the scripture, please, and turn to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, his first letter, chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 1 through 25 again. <clears throat> and you bear with me, please, this morning. I'm struggling a little bit with my voice. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For I pray, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Today we're discussing part two of what I've entitled The Edifice. Last Sunday morning, we approached our continued study of chapter 14 with a question. What, what is the edifice that we're building? Paul has commanded us to build up the church. What's the edifice? What does it mean that we're edifying one another? What is this edifice? That question which we're picking up once again this morning, has been presented to us by a procedure 
through which the Apostle Paul is carrying the church at Corinth. It's a process of correction in order to help this church better understand what she is and how she's to operate. In chapter 13, Paul introduced the metaphor of an organism, this, this organism that serves as a teaching tool for the church. Now in chapter 14, Paul is continuing to unpack for us the nature, the purpose, and the function of this organism, which he's called the Church of God, the Fellowship of Jesus Christ, and more recently, the Body of Christ. Now Paul's procedure of examining and understanding the church should seem at least vaguely familiar to us. It's the way human investigation and reason and understanding typically proceeds. When Adam was first placed in the garden, one of the very first things we learn about his functional purpose and nature is that he was a scientist. He was a reasoner. He was an examiner and an observer. And God expected him to be those things. God brought each of the animals that he had made to this first man to examine and understand. And the expectation was that Adam would discern a quality of nature and purpose and function in each of the creatures in order to identify them, understand them, and name them, which he did. Paul is proceeding in a similar fashion. He's bringing the church to us, illuminating its origin, its nature, its purpose, and its function so that we'll not only able to be, to be able to taxonomically categorize the church, you might say, to distinguish it from the world, but also so that as members of the church of Jesus Christ, we'll be able to understand it and value it and function in it properly. Hence Paul's analogy of building up the church into an edifice, into a building, a structure. And our question, what are we building? Now last week we examined evidence in the passage that we are building a school. Paul has emphasized the purpose of the church as a kind of academy, an academy of those who've been saved to engage in the discovery of the revelation of God of himself and his word. Now to that end, all in the church are students. Every one of you, brethren, are students. And all of those students are to engage in building up one another in the knowledge of God's revelation in his word. And some are called to be teachers and preachers. Now, following the observation that we are building a school, we noted that Paul has also identified the church as an evangelical mission. The edifice we're building is also, in part, purposed for the promotion of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is formed of those who have been saved through the message of the gospel, and the church continues to expand as an extension of Christ's kingdom because she's committed to proclaiming and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hearing and the sight of unbelievers. Now, today... As we expand on our study of Paul's answer to our question, what is the edifice that we're building? Today I want to note that Paul teaches us that we are also building a temple. Now eventually we'll get to the idea of a garrison and a hospital, but today our focus is a temple. Now let's begin with this idea of a temple. Now I've claimed that Paul is teaching us that we are to build the church up as a temple. Now where am I getting that thought? Well, to begin to answer that question, let's start by considering at a most fundamental level what the temple represented. The tabernacle of Israel was a temple, a temporary temple. 
And the great temple of Solomon was an expansion uh, that made more permanent what the tabernacle originally represented as a temple. Those buildings, if I can call them that, were fundamentally meant to represent the presence of God among his people. Now, I don't have time to spend several sermons, which we could, to truly develop that statement. So let me initially simply note four things for your consideration. First, consider that the symbolism of the various design elements and fixtures of the temple all conveyed truth about God and about the divine nature and about his redemptive covenant with his people. They spoke of the Messiah who would come. As an example, Consider how the holiest of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant rested, was in the innermost part of the temple over the tabernacle. It was cordoned off, as it were, secluded, separated behind a thick curtain veil. It was here that we're told in the book of Numbers that God spoke to Moses from between the cherubim that were designed as part of the mercy seat lid of the ark. Between the cherubim was the symbolic place that God revealed was where he dwelt. The eminence of God, eminence in terms of the revelation of God of himself in the temple, that idea is connected to Paul's requirement that the church operate as a school of the revelation of God, a place of the discovery of the knowledge of God. It's here in the church that God speaks to his people as he once spoke to Israel, as he spoke to Moses. In Numbers 1.1, we learn that God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Notice the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting. Not just that Israel was coming together to meet, which certainly also is an analogy of the church gathering to meet, but more, note that God was meeting with Israel in this place. In Numbers 7.89, we read this, And when Moses went into the tent of meeting, to speak with the Lord. He heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Brethren, this speaks to a large part of the functional purpose of the church. We gather and meet together to receive the word of God. In that sense, our gathering as a congregation is very much like the gathering of Israel thousands of years ago. Paul's emphasis on prophecy and interpretation and declaring with understanding God's revelation of himself in his word, that's a command to perpetuate this original purpose of the temple in our church. Now, practically speaking, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we gather to hear the voice of God? Well, we do that again by maintaining the word of God as the central element of church life. We make the revelation of God of himself and his word our focus. Now, having said that, perhaps as you're thinking about what I've just said, you might want to respond with, well, what about Christ? Shouldn't Christ be our main focus? Well, you're not wrong if you're thinking that. But let me respond to that with Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice 
how our Lord made himself the main focus of this conversation. This was on the road to Emmaus. He did it by going to the word of God and declaring what it said of himself with certainty, sufficiency, and infallibility. Christ honored himself, honoring the word of God as the revelation of himself, and so must we. The church needs to make sure that the word of God is central. Now this is not idolatrous elevation of a book, but rather elevation of God in his revelation of himself. It's hearing God as if what he says has ultimate value and authority. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of dedication to hear the word of God in submission and with appreciation. Brethren, all I'm saying is that we need to make the church a temple in that sense. Make engaging in the hearing of the word of God a passion when you gather with your brethren in the place of meeting. Don't be satisfied with fellowship alone. Recognize that your fellowship has been founded upon the truth of the gospel, which is revealed in the word of God as he declares himself to his people. Apart from Christ and his revelation of himself and his word, we would have no fellowship. And recognize that earthly fellowship can be lost. The meeting broken. The local church dissolved. If God's word is dismissed and violated and degraded, he can write Ichabod. The glory has departed over this place. God draws near to his people in the gathering of the church for more than mere presence. He draws near to his people and he draws his people near to himself in order to commune and communicate with them. God give us grace as a church to always see and preserve that vital element of church life. God speaks to his people in the temple of the church. Now you brethren, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says this to you brethren, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God has made us into that temple through Jesus Christ, so that we might be near to him and he to us, so that we might have fellowship with him and hear his voice. He has said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. His presence, brethren, is purposeful. When present, God declares the knowledge of his voice to us in his word. We dare not neglect it, demean it, and injure the church in the process. Now, second, I want you to consider this as we consider that we're building up the church as a temple. Consider that the tabernacle was in the center of the camp of Israel and the temple was lifted up on the temple mount where the citizens of Jerusalem might look up and see it. Now, this characteristic centrality of the temple was intended to convey the extent and the scope of the presence of God to all parts of the nation. There was no place in the nation, so to speak, where God was not, where his presence did not reach. It also conveys the idea of the authority of God. His authority was central and lifted up. He ruled all, over all, and above all. In the church that we're building, brethren, God is central. He is, whether we acknowledge it or not, he is, and he must be. Christ is represented in so much of the symbolism of the temple. 
Now most easily, he's seen in the sacrifices of the temple and the blood on the mercy seat. Centered in the camp and lifted up, Jesus is singularly above all in terms of the efficacy of his sacrifice to save his people. He's singularly central and above all in terms of ruling his people in the church. We see Paul pick up this idea of this highest ruling authority of Jesus Christ in the church as he proceeds into chapter 14 to command the church with the voice of Jesus Christ, with the authority of Jesus Christ delegated to him as an inspired, spirit-filled apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not looking in these later verses in depth today, but please note that in verses 26 through 40, Paul does not shrink back from command after command, dictating exactly how the worship of God was to proceed in the church. He lines up orderly worship for the Corinthian brethren. He corrects disorderly conduct in the worship. He addresses women in their role in the church. All of this is done with a clear voice of a command. Now, how could Paul do that? How could Paul do that? Paul could do that because God has ultimate authority in the temple regarding his worship. It was that way in the Old Testament in Israel. It remains that way in the church today. God has not changed. His expectation of worship does not change. Christ, the very brightness of the Father's glory, the second person of the divine trinity, the Son of God, has spoken and declared his will through his apostles. He's made it clear how worship is to proceed in the new covenant church, just as God once declared to Israel in the Sinai wilderness. We're not left to our own authority in building the worship and the function of the church. We have a head over our body, which is Jesus Christ. The scope of his authority reaches every corner of church life. And there's no place in the function and the purpose of our church where we might rightly say, uh, Jesus has no interest or, or nothing to say about this part of church life. Never has God presented himself as unclear and uncertain or silent in his worship and in the function and the building of his temple in particular. Brethren, since we are the temple of the Spirit of God, He is naturally fully invested in how we, His temple, operate in our meeting together for worship as He once was in Israel. I'm really just asking, is the temple, is the tabernacle central or not? Does God rule over His people and their worship or not? Paul makes it very clear for us in chapter 14, Christ does indeed rule over the worship of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now let's ask this question. How do we make sure that we are building up that temple edifice so that Christ is ruling it? How do we do that? We do that by living in our church fellowship, in the body of Christ, in the church of God, in submission to him. Now let's get very specific. Let's get uncomfortably specific even. If you will not submit to one another in agreement with the word of God, you are choosing to worship in a way that is offensive to God. We know how that ended with Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who burned incense that was not commanded. Their lack of submission cost them their lives. 
Was that not essentially what was happening in Corinth with her mishandling of the Lord's Supper? The worship of God when we gather, brethren, it's a serious thing. We can't do it any way we want. We're required to submit to Christ in these matters. Now that suggests two things. First of all, we'd better be very familiar with what he commands regarding his worship so that we can submit to those commands and not mishandle things in the church. And secondly, when the appointed teachers and preachers of the word of God require submission to Christ in his worship and in church life, in all of Christian discipleship, all of our Christian sojourn, when the preachers and the teachers of the church apply the word of God to us, we'd better obey. For example, I personally, I don't have the option of setting aside Paul's command that my preaching and teaching convey clear understanding of God's word to you. For example, we don't have the option of setting aside the command of Christ through his apostle that the women of Christ's Reformed Church learn in silence without a voice in public teaching and preaching. Is the tabernacle central or not? Is the temple lifted up or not? Does Christ rule and reign over us or not? Not only is every promise yes and amen in Christ, but every command of God is yes and amen in Christ. And so it ought to be with God's people. Let's be careful in our building of the church that we examine our actions and our attitudes for insubordination. The temple we are building has Christ as its head. He's the great high priest, we're told. Now the third thing I want you to consider, consider that when the tabernacle was finished, when the building of Solomon's temple was finalized and dedicated, something wondrous occurred. The glory of God came down upon the tabernacle. His glory filled the temple. There was a visible, determinate revelation of God that he was here in this place among his people. The glory was unapproachable. It was so potent. Such was its terrible excellency and holy potency. This was visible to Israel in the wilderness. This was visible to the Jews who looked on at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Brethren, have you considered the reality that the very same God is no less present now in our church at this very moment. His Spirit, though invisibly present, is no less really present in terms of power, excellency, holiness, and glory. I am convinced that if we had eyes to see it, we would immediately be overwhelmed and fall on our faces. In part, It's a gracious act of God that we are presently blind to the real presence of the Spirit of God in our midst. He's here in this temple, the gathering of his people, here in you, brethren, even now, just as he once was in the tabernacle when the cloud descended and the Shekinah glory filled the tent of meeting. Paul speaks of this glory. He speaks of this glory as present even now. When we studied chapter 13 in verse 12, he said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, 
But then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Presently, God's imminent glory has been dimmed to us. But in the future, in heavenly places, in possession of a resurrected and glorified body, we will see this glory, the glory radiating from Christ Jesus face to face, though now it's presently hidden. Then we'll see it in its fullness. Hidden is not the same as absent. Dim is not the same as missing. Seeing a part denies the absence of the whole. Brethren, God is present in the temple that we're building. In this place, this body of Christ. Now what does that mean practically? I've been in heaven, haven't I? Let's bring it back down to earth. It means that there is cause for reverence as we build. As you work in the church and build this temple of the presence of God, be mindful that he's present. Being reverently mindful that he is present means that you labor in such a way that you contribute to the manifestation of the Spirit of God. Paul's been talking about that with the gifts, has he not? He has purposed, God has purposed, to be present among his people. Work in cooperation with that reality by revering him and glorifying him here in the church among his people. This has been Paul's argument with regard to utilizing the various gifts that have been given by God. Listen once more to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. We're not going to rehash our study on the gifts of the Spirit. I'm simply pointing out that the gifts of God manifest the Spirit of God. That's what Paul is telling us. They're given through the Spirit and by the Spirit. The gifts are empowered by the Spirit and and apportioned by the Spirit according to His sovereign will. Do you hear Paul's emphasis? That's what I'm trying to get through to. It's an emphasis. It's not on the one gifted, but on the glorious giver. Notice how Paul continues to magnify God in the use use of the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 14 in verses 24 and 25. There he says this, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. What's Paul telling us? You're supposed to use your gifts to live and interact together in this fellowship, this is what Paul is arguing, in order to produce a certain kind of outcome. What outcome? People falling on their face in humility and sincere worship of God. That's the outcome. The outcome we are after in building this temple of the church is the production of God-glorifiers. We're making a place of worshipers who acknowledge the presence of God with all humility and lift up and glorify His name, exalting Him in word and deed. Christ exalted and man abased. That's what it means to commit yourself to building a temple in the church of Jesus Christ. 
Practically speaking, it means that we watch out for those practices in the church, those attitudes in our hearts individually, those motives and desires and words and deeds that elevate man and obscure the glorious presence of God among his people. One of the primary ways we fall into this grievous error and sin in the church and cease the work of building up the church is to elevate ourselves and our talents and seize preeminence. This was Corinth's problem. Note Paul's warnings regarding this occurring at Corinth. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, verse 4. Speaking of praying in a foreign tongue without interpretation, Paul says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. He speaks of their unhelpful independence. What then, brethren, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. In other words, everyone is doing their own thing as it seems right to themselves. Verse 26. He implies a selfish disorder persisting in the church, saying, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 33, he uses words like shameful to address those who are acting autonomously for their own irreverent elevation, specifically the women of the church. Verse 35, brethren, I have to wonder how different things would have been at Corinth if for a split second they had had a vision of the glory of God present in that place. How corrective would that have been? From standing in prominence to falling on their faces in a moment. And I'm just asking the question, how different would we be as we come together to the tent of meeting here at Christ Reformed Church? How different would we be if when we arrived, we sat and spoke and sang and prayed and taught and preached and fellowshiped in the visible presence of the glory of God? I have to think that we would be different. And admittedly, that disturbs me. Disturbs me about myself. It shouldn't be that way. This is a temple we're building. God is really present. Brethren, let's engage in our meeting in this place or in any place that God puts us with that necessary and appropriate reverence, with all due humility, making it our chief end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now finally, consider that it was in the temple that the sacrifices were made and where we would have brought our animals to be slain if we were Old Testament Jews. The courtyard of the tabernacle nearest to the altar and the area, the area immediately surrounding the sacrificial altar. Brethren, it would have been a bloody mess. That's the reality of all the blood of bulls and goats poured out in sacrifice of sins. The sheer volume of that over time is difficult to imagine and contemplate. The temple was the place of sacrifice. In a similar sense, we are building an edifice in type like the temple as the church is built up. How so? How so? Well, we're doing that in the sense that the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ is central and magnified and present in all of its starkness and glory in this place. Or it should be. As we build up the church according to Christ's command through his apostle, we're making a meeting place of worship which has a prominent teaching. Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
This, Paul said, was the only thing that he determined to know among the church at Corinth when he helped found the church and first preached to them, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now to clarify, I want to be clear in this statement, Paul did not re-sacrifice Jesus, as it were. He did not make new offerings of sacrifice. He presented the accomplished work of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians. And so do we. We do not offer up Jesus again as a repeating sacrifice. We don't sacrifice him again in the Lord's Supper or declare him sacrificed again and dying and buried again in the waters of baptism. We present Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world to atone for the sins of his people. We present Jesus Christ as once stricken and afflicted by God, but by whose stripes we have now been healed. We proclaim Jesus Christ as the Lamb without blemish and without spot, whoever lives above to cover his people in his righteousness so that they can enter now into the holiest of holies and hear the voice of God between the cherubim. We preach Jesus Christ resurrected and exalted and enthroned in heaven, beloved of the Father, accepted and glorified once more to make a home for his people because of his accomplished redemptive work. In this sense, with the declaration of this message central to our purpose in gathering and following Jesus, in this sense, we're also building a temple. There's no access to God apart from the shedding of blood. That's our message. Through the shedding of blood once and finally for all his people, for his church, Jesus bore the wrath of God. He gave up his spirit with a loud voice, proclaiming victory over sin, Satan, and death accomplished. So long as this is our message, the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, unadulterated by human endeavor, not displaced by some other doctrine of men, so long as this is our message, We are building up the church as a temple of Jesus Christ. So long as we are calling men to flee the wrath to come, to escape the power of sin by running to Jesus for rescue, we are building up the temple of Jesus Christ in the church. So long as we urge and demand and plead with men to trust in this Savior and to receive from him the right to become children of God, even so we are building up the church as the temple of Jesus Christ. So let's do that. Let's make the honoring and proclaiming of that sacrifice central in the work of building up the edifice of our church, as Paul did. This is what the Spirit of God uses so that by all of us, the outsider, the unbeliever is convicted and called to account by all. The nakedness of the sins of his or her heart uncovered And so falling on their face, they come to worship God and declare that God is really among us. This only happens, brethren, in the spiritual temple of Jesus Christ, his church. Obviously, we're not going to have time to discuss any of the last two edifices, have any discussion about believers building up in the church a garrison and a hospital. We'll save the garrison and the hospital for next week. Instead, I want to close with a final thought, a final exhortation to you with regard to one last implication drawn from this idea that the church is being built up as a temple. What idea? It's the idea of offerings brought to God in the temple and vows made to God and paid to God in the temple. Now let me first say that I'm not attempting to specifically reference tithing. Although that would not be a non-secular to go there. 
Also, I'll admit that we don't find a specific reference to this aspect of temple function, especially stated here in chapter 14, at least in the immediate context of Paul's commission here to believers to build up the church. Now, having said that, it's certainly operating within the fuller context of Scripture to speak to the idea of offerings and paying of vows and tithes when speaking of the temple. And I think there's an implied teaching regarded regarding offerings, paying of vows and tithes embedded here in Paul's commands to the Corinthian church. Ultimately, the idea I want to convey to you regarding building a temple and vows and offerings and tithes is the idea of sacrifice and of giving of self and setting aside elevation of self and self-service. Surely that has been a common theme of Paul throughout this letter of correction to the Corinthian brethren. Now, where does that thought appear in our immediate text, you might wonder? In what way might we say that Paul touches on the temple functions of vows and offerings and tithes? Well, I think we find an answer to that question in verses 23 through 25. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Consider the heart attitude that Paul is addressing as he shifts in these verses, as he shifts the emphasis from the obscurity of uninterpreted foreign language utterances in the church to clearly interpreted prophecy and prophecy in common language with understanding. The general thought here is one of diminishing of self for the good of the congregation and for the good of the one coming into the congregation, for the upbuilding of the whole body and the rescue of the one. Hence, in verse 4, Paul has said, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, in refocusing on the upbuilding and the good of the whole body, the individual member must sacrifice something. You have to give something up. My benefit, the centrality of me, the spotlight on me, my gifts, my talents, my ambitions, all of these things must be diminished for the edification of the whole body, for the building up of the church. The first fruits of my labor must be given to God and dedicated to His glory, His kingdom, not preserved or utilized merely for my benefit. Remember, The temple was where a devoted Israelite came to offer the first fruits of his labor. And so it is, or it ought to be, in the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. I'll ask the question, why does the believer do that? Sacrifice and offering, offering. sacrifice and offering as a concept helps answer that question for us. Why does the believer do this? Why do we make offerings and give up tithes? Why, speaking Analogously, do believers give up our first fruits to God as opposed to spending them on ourselves? We do that for the glory of God so that Christ is exalted. Paul is touching on this basic principle of paying vows and making offerings as he speaks of the outcome of the whole church unselfishly committing itself to what is best. 
The outcome of setting aside the elevation of self in the admittedly very dynamic, very glamorous expression of the gifts like tongues and healings, giving that up in order that prophecy, that is the declaration of the word of God, might take preeminence. That sacrifice of self produced an outcome to the glory of God. Paul describes the visiting unbeliever's response to this self-reducing behavior in the church in verse 25. He says this, falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Not that you're with God. You see the, you see the emphasis? It produced the worship of God and the magnification of the excellency and majesty of God. God was glorified. Brethren, my final thought of exhortation is really not overly developed. It's admittedly fairly simple. We are commanded to build up the church into a temple-like structure as a gathering where we give sacrificially of ourselves individually for the glory of God. That sacrificial giving may be varied in terms of exactly what vow we pay, what we sacrificially offer. But ultimately, it comes down to reduction and denial of self. You want to boil it down? There it is. Reduction and denial of self. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Christ said himself, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Taking up a cross is a powerful metaphor for self-denial and sacrifice, is it not? When John the Baptist's disciples became concerned about the reduction of John and his ministry with the commencement of Jesus' ministry, do you remember what John said in response? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. This too is what it means, what it costs to build up Christ's church. John understood that. So he was fully willing to be diminished. This is what it means to, to make the church a place, a temple, where vows are paid, offerings are made, and tithes are given. And this is my final thought for us to consider regarding building up the edifice of the church. What are we building? We're building a temple and all that that implies. Brethren, as we join together in this fellowship of Jesus Christ, we are meant to decrease ourselves individually, even to the point that we think, we're told, of others more highly than ourselves. And clearly that we think of Christ more highly than any other. It's impossible, I tell you, it's impossible to do that in a spirit of pride and selfishness. Can't be done. A heart filled with arrogant ambition will halt the building of the church, certainly the building up of the church. Instead, we'll be building downward, so to speak, with wood, hay, and straw. And Paul has already warned us that such an edifice will not survive the fires of testing when they come. So sacrifice self. Diminish the vision of an elevated self. Bring every thought, every desire, every gift and talent into captivity to the will of Christ. Make it your goal to build up the church of Jesus Christ into a spiritual temple more glorious than the temple of Solomon. Because it is. It is. This temple is founded on a glorious foundation, a precious cornerstone. It's been purchased with the, bl the blood of the Son of God. 
This temple is owned by the glorious Son of Man, it having been gifted to Him as an inheritance by His Father. The presence and the labor and the love of the Holy Spirit of God is in this place among these two or three in a way that far transcends the presence of God in the stunning temple of Herod. Remember when the disciples pointed out the glory of that temple to Jesus? We talked about this last week, Jim. They thought it was stunning, immaculate, it's glorious. Look at it, Lord. And Jesus said it would be raised to the ground in the space of three days, and even the very stones of its foundation were turned over, and so they were. The fire was so hot that the gold flowed into the cracks of the cobblestones of the street, and the Roman soldiers turned over the stones to dig out the gold. Glorious as that temple was, it was destroyed, as he said. But to this day, brethren, the church of Jesus Christ, this temple of the Holy Spirit, remains and expands. And of the increase of that kingdom, we're told there will be no end. Brethren, that's glorious. That's worthy of our care and reverence in building up. That's worthy of our diligent obedience to Paul's command in verse 12. Strive to excel in building up the church. So God help us in the strength and the wisdom that he supplies. Amen.